of socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. 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 Welcome in to episode 62 of You Don't Have to Yell. It's the bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here, and we are less than four weeks away from the second to last presidential election that will take place under our two party duopoly. How do I know it's the second to last presidential election, you ask? Well, firstly, my magic eight ball has given me the all signs point to yes, and normally. I get the reply hazy try again response. And secondly, because of the two guests on this episode. Now, Californians for Electoral Reform, or CIFR, as they're known, have been working to bring ranked choice voting and proportional representation to the state of California for decades. And I had the chance to catch up with their co-presidents, Steve Chesson and Kevin Sabo about their history, successes, challenges getting proportional representation implemented in their state, as well as their long-term vision for the organization. Now, it's a fascinating conversation, and I want you all to listen out for Steve's four-phase plan and ask yourself, which part of that phase are we in right now? Special thanks to Felix for pointing these folks out to me. As always, I will be back at the end with some final thoughts. I have uh, Steve Chesson and uh, Kevin Sabo uh, from CIFAR here. And maybe Steve, Kevin, if you could talk a little bit about your roles and and what CIFAR does. Um, Yeah, I guess I'll start. Um, CIFAR stands for Californians for Electoral Reform. Um, we've been in existence um, since about 1993 or four. Uh, I um, joined the board in around 90. I became a member in 94, I think, and got elected to the board in 95, uh, starting out as, um, uh, what was the title I gave myself? Uh, Vice President in Charge of State and National Campaigns. And after a while, I became uh, president or co-president of the organization and this year, I am co-president with Kevin. Okay. And Kevin, I guess we've stolen your thunder here. We know you're co-president. <laughs> no worries. Yeah. I uh, In the mid-90s, I was watching Nickelodeon. Uh, so <laughs> I, I was definitely not involved in CIFR at that point. But yeah. uh, after I graduated, I uh, moved to Sacramento. I met uh, a CIFR board member, our vice president, Paula Lee. And um, she sold me on the organization. So I've been on the board the last four years. And this year, uh, I was elected co-president alongside Steve. Congratulations. This whole podcast is based on electoral reform. Uh, Your organization has been at it for a while now. And, you know, I talk with, I've talked with a lot of I guess, let me call, not to dismiss them, experts, but certainly theorists, you know, people who promote the idea of proportional representation in U.S. in U.S. government in U.S. states. Um, I have yet to interview any practitioners, you know, and and I think I mentioned this. Y- your organization, from all I've seen, seems to have the longest track record of success so far. Um, now, Steve, I, I'd like to start start with you because you know you've obviously been with the organization longest. And the thing I found most interesting and I wanted you to talk about is when you started with the organization, you had a, you effectively, it wasn't too long into your tenure that you had a 40 year plan, right? I have to share with you one of my favorite quotes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't remember where I heard this from, but it goes like this. In theory, there is no difference between theory and practice. In practice, there is. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah. um, yeah, uh, like I said, I got active with the organization in, uh, we're on the board of directors in 95. And at that point, we were called um, <clears throat> Northern California Citizens for Proportional Representation because we were solely focused on proportional representation. Um, there was debate within the organization as to what the best single winner method was. Some of us liked the uh, 
what we used to call instant runoff voting, which is now called ranked choice voting. There were other people who were fans of the Condorcet method. Um, so the organization didn't really have a position on single winner elections. Um, and then in 1997, uh, or either late some 77 or sorry, 97 or 98, um, Santa Clara County formed a charter review committee and I started going to their meetings and tried to convince them to change the way the board of supervisors was elected, either go to a proportional method or go to instant round of voting. Cause I personally believed that ranked choice voting was a much better system than Condorcet. Could you explain Condorcet? Cause I actually haven't even heard of that one. Sorry. Okay. Um, yeah, it was, um, invented in the 1700s by a, a French guy. And he basically said that in a single winner election, um, if you've got more than two candidates, the one candidate who can beat every other candidate in a head-to-head race would be the, be- would be the person who should be elected. Okay. Um, and you can actually uh, compute that using ranked ballots. Okay. Um, so it's another way of, of, of tabulating a, a ranked choice election. The problem is that you can get cycles uh, where A beats B and B beats C, but C beats A. And there's all sorts of convoluted ways to break up those Condorcet ties. And it also can result in somebody winning an election who was nobody's first choice, but is everybody's second choice if you've got four or more candidates. Um, so anyway, there's this big theoretical debate. There, there, there are people who are fans of Condorcet, and then there's people who are fans of ranked choice voting, and we just have to agree to disagree, I suppose. I will say that Condorcet, as far as I'm aware, has never been used in an actual public election, you know, for, in a governmental kind, kind of election. So we can, we can see back to your quote on theory and practice there, I guess. Yeah. The chair of the Charter Review Committee... Um, Santa Clara County Charter Review Committee, a political science professor from San Jose State University by the name of Terry Christensen, basically said he didn't like proportional representation, but he did like the idea of instant runoff voting because it would eliminate the primary. Basically, the way the Board of Supervisors is elected in Santa Clara County is in the primary, which has moved between March and June of even years. Um, If someone gets all the candidates are on the ballot in the primary. If someone gets more than 50% of the vote in the primary, they're elected. Otherwise, there's a runoff election in November between the top two candidates. Mm-hmm. Um, that's typically called a, a, a two-round runoff system. Yeah. And he liked the idea of eliminating the first round and just having a single ranked choice voting election in November. So he agreed to a charter amendment proposal uh, that went on the ballot. At that time, the county didn't have equipment that could handle ranked ballots. Uh, I don't think anybody actually had equipment that could handle ranked ballots. Mm-hmm. Um, so the charter language was written uh, to the, uh, I don't have it in front of me, but basically said that once the county has the technology, the Board of Supervisors could authorize that all county elections, Board of Supervisors, Sheriff, Assessor, um, um, I forget what the other office is, um, would be done through uh, ranked choice voting or instant runoff voting. Mm-hmm. And so that went on the ballot in November 98. Um, I conducted a very um, inexpensive campaign for it, basically lining up endorsements from various organizations and from the newspapers in the area. The San Jose Mercury News came out in favor of it, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and it passed something like 55 to 45 so that was our very first electoral success for uh, any kind of language. This is what I would call enabling legislation. It didn't mandate the use of ranked choice voting, but it enabled the use of ranked choice voting once the county got the technology. Did they get the technology and eventually implement it? Um, we eventually got the technology, uh, but there's been a change in the Board of Supervisors since then. Mm-hmm. Actually, it was put on the ballot, I think, by a either a three to two vote or a four to one vote. We didn't get unanimous support from mm-hmm. the Board of Supervisors. Um, one, and there's been a shift in the political will kind of dissipated. So we haven't actually implemented it since we've actually gotten the technology to handle it. Um, but since then, we've had other successes. 
mm-hmm. um, in, in San Francisco in 2003, I mm-hmm. believe is when um, Measure A passed, uh, which changed San Francisco's elections to rank choice voting. And then in 2010, uh, when Oakland and San Le- uh, Oakland and Berkeley and uh, and San Leandro uh, went to rank choice voting for their uh, city councils. Yep, yep. And so now they're all they're full rank choice voting at this point in time. Then is that right? Um, well, except for the the college board and and the uh, the school board, which are at large elections. Oh, sure, sure. Th- okay. Those have not changed. Okay. But any any election that was a district election or a single winter election in those communities has changed. Yeah, and so it 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 sounds like there was a lot of success at the municipal level, like a lot of success changing things at the city and county level. And then that's when you you really crafted yourself kind of a 40-year plan on getting uh, on implementing uh a proportional system of representation in California. And can you kind of walk just quickly through kind of the, because you, you had it segmented decade by decade, which I found really interesting. Yeah. I should have called it the four phase plan, not the 40 year plan, but anyway, phase one of the first decade would be the decade of single winner ranked choice voting, instant runoff voting. Uh, where we get a lot of local jurisdictions to uh, switch to it, especially uh, charter cities that had two-round runoff elections, because that's a low-hanging fruit. It saves the city money by eliminating an election. Mm-hmm. Um, it saves wear and tear on the uh, candidates by only having to campaign once. And it saves wear and tear on the donors because they're not being asked to give money twice. Okay. So that's really the low-hanging fruit. Uh, but I figured we'd, we'd get... Once we got everybody using ranked choice voting, um, then maybe we could switch some of these cities to the proportional version of ranked choice mm-hmm. voting, single transferable vote, single transferable yep. vote, or um, multi-winner ranked choice voting, mm-hmm. or at-large ranked choice voting. Different people call it different things. Um, and in the meantime, at the, uh, for state elections, for state assembly and state senate and governor for state elections, we could start using instant runoff voting, the single winner form for those elections, because people would be used to ranking candidates. They would like ranking candidates. So that would be um, phase two. It would be proportional representation at the local level and, and instant runoff voting at the state level. Mm-hmm. So that was going to be the second decade. Yep. Phase three or the third decade would be we get proportional representation at the state level and then ranked choice voting at the uh, national level uh, for president and for people using it for, well, we could do it at the state level for, for Congress because obviously states govern their own elections mm-hmm. uh, for House of Representatives and for Senate. Um, but we, in phase three, we'd get other states adopting it as well. And then phase four finally would be national proportional representation. We Got would it. elect Congress using proportional representation like uh, the way uh, – Almost every Western European country uses proportional representation to elect their uh, their, their lower house in, in parliament. Yeah, and I, I have to say the, the the length of your plan really served me a in, an enormous portion of humble pie uh, because originally when I started this, I thought to myself, I think ten years, I think ten years is enough time to get this all out and, or get the message out. And uh, one of my earlier guests, uh, I, don't, I don't know if either you're familiar with Doug Amy or Douglas Amy. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 As a matter yeah. of fact, I've got some of his books. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he so he was on the he was on the show. And I remember when I was doing my research, I saw a clip of him on C-SPAN talking about proportional representation dated from 1995. So needless to say, like, I, 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 I think... This is this is a message that's been delivered over over the long haul, uh, and uh, and 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 definitely kind of reset my sights as far as the the work it was going to take. Um, and, and Kevin, I, I want to let you in here because you've been sitting patiently um, while I've while I've talked to to Steve. Now you came on board a little later, and now you set up a bit of a shorter runway for the organization, right? Right. Yeah. 
yeah, I, I think um, younger people in general tend to have a greater sense of urgency about things. Mm-hmm. I think it might relate to the climate change, um, you know, which frankly seems too passive a term now to describe what's happening. Um, mm-hmm. But I think also when it comes to our democracy, we're running, we're running out of runway too. So I guess what's, what's surprised me is our, the number of people I've been able to find who've been pushing this concept for a while. Um, but also the number of people who've kind of recently entered the fray, myself included, because I, I think I told you both when we spoke before this, you know, I started this all as a project to try and get campaign finance reform. Uh, and slowly kind of digging into the process, I realized that wasn't the problem at all. It was our winner-take-all system. And and I almost think, Kevin, kind of to your point, um, it's like the moment is asking for it now. Right. You know? In, in a lot of ways, I think when we didn't have fires going up and down the West Coast, when we weren't in the middle of a pandemic, when there wasn't a constitutional crisis looming over our heads this November, um, it was a lot easier to kind of plan it out. And now we're sort of at, it's a point where people really are are looking, looking for options. Steve, I I wanted, I want to jump back to the, to the history a bit, because I'd like to know, like, you know, what are, what are some of the challenges or what are some of the problems that pop up when you try to implement a system like this at the municipal level? Cause I'd love to provide people with sort of a, an idea as to what some of the obstacles in the way of, of, of PR are so you know, they can plan accordingly. Right. Well, there's three main obstacles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the first are elected officials themselves mm-hmm. because you're changing the rules by which they got elected. They know how to conduct campaigns under the existing rules. Mm-hmm. And, and whether consciously or unconsciously, you're going to think, would I be able to win election? Would I have been able to win my first election if the rules had been different? And they really don't know what the answer is to that. One of the things that ranked choice voting, the instant runoff voting version of it does, is it reduces the effect of negative campaigning. Let me go back to, to like a, a municipal election or a two-round runoff election. Mm-hmm. In that first round where there's f- a bunch of different candidates running, say five candidates running, um, you don't see a lot of negative campaigning. Everybody's putting out their best program because you're, uh, unless you've begun polling, you really don't know who the front runner is, who you should be throwing mud at. Mm-hmm. Um, so everyone's campaigning. And then if no one gets a majority, now you've got this runoff election between two. And in a head-to-head race, that's where the knives come out. Because if I throw mud, at, if I, say I'm running against Kevin. If I throw mud at Kevin, that may not encourage someone to vote for me, but it might at least discourage them from voting for Kevin. Mm -hmm. And if I can get someone who might have voted for Kevin to leave, to skip over that portion of the ballot and and not vote for him or me, that helps me. That's something I want to point out because I don't think I've ever said it, but I've known it for a while, which is when you are in a winner take all system the goal is as much to stop certain people from voting as it is to make other people vote. Unfortunately, yes. And so elected officials are, 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 are an issue. They, they obviously need to understand how they're going to survive. What are some of the other things that, that, that stand in your way? Well, and their campaign consultants, because you're taking a tool out of their toolbox and they've got to learn new tools. Uh, the second obstacle is election officials. Now, I've been a uh, what we call in California field inspector. We provide support for, uh, say, uh, half a dozen or a dozen polling places, making sure uh, that they have all the supplies that they need if they run short of something um, or if issues come up that they can't, that they're not sure how to handle. You're a little bit more experienced than they are, so you can handle those. Um, and I've heard an election election day described as a, a Broadway perform a Broadway production that opens and closes on the same night. Mm-hmm. So the, the election officials uh, are very reluctant to take on something that's going to make their job harder that they might mess up uh, because they might get fired. They know how to run elections under the current rules. You change the rules. Um, it becomes riskier for them. 
Mm -hmm. uh, so, so there's actually a, an organization in California, the California Association of Clerks and Election Officials. And while some of their membership, especially those who actually are elected to their positions, so can only be fired by the voters, um, many of their members, the ones who are appointed, so can be fired by the county exec, um, they're reluctant to take on uh, these new rules uh, to see changes. And so they've been a major source of opposition, uh, at least until recently. Mm -hmm. um, uh, on ranked choice voting, I think we've finally gotten them comfortable enough that they've been neutral on our legislative proposals. Uh, okay. <laughs> I think that's about as good as it's going to get if I had to guess. So Yeah, but but in the beginning, they were definitely opposed. Okay. Uh, they were definitely opposed. Um, and then the third problem, uh, third obstacle is equipment. Uh, because your standard equipment... Uh, for whether it's the old lever-type machines um, that were developed in the 1800s that they use on the East Coast, uh, that when my mom took me to the polls in New York uh, on election day that she used to use to vote, uh, to vote on, or, or the punch card systems that we used to use where you punch holes in a card and how do you know which hole is your first choice and which hole is your second choice. Yeah. Um, or the optical scan equipment. Mm -hmm. Um which made it difficult um, to, to rank more than maybe three different candidates. Um, it requires, it would require new equipment and anytime you requiring an upgrade of the equipment adds a cost that the County has to bear. Um, so it, it becomes important to uh, get in tune with the equipment upgrade cycle of your county. When are yep. they planning to upgrade equipment? Make sure that the equipment they're planning to upgrade can accommodate a ranked ballot. And the good news on that front, I mean, which wasn't true, of course, uh, 10 years ago, um, but the good news on that front is all of the major vendors can now uh, accommodate a, a ranked ballot um, with, uh, I think the minimum I've heard is six uh, from one vendor and, and, and a minimum of 10 I'm sorry, oh, interesting. They, yeah, 10 from another vendor. And basically, as long as the paper is from a third vendor. Interesting. And I guess we should have said this at the top. You know, Steve, you're you're starting to, I wouldn't say dial back your involvement with the organization, but certainly maybe hand more, more responsibilities over to Kevin. And Kevin, your plan is to kind of take the baton and, and continue on. When you hear these obstacles... And you kind of look at the next decade or two decades or so, you know, what are some of the things you're going to do or you have planned to really kind of sell this concept throughout the state? Yeah, I've what I've always said is that our policies and and what we call for, the problem isn't that it's that it's unpopular. You know, we're not it's not like uh, the Green New Deal or healthcare reform. It's not one of those issues where the public has a really good grip on, on the full breadth of the issue. And there's a genuine debate, um, you know, going on. Our problem is, is a lack of awareness that when you get, um, there have been, there have been several times that I've been asked to go give a presentation on all this stuff to high school seniors in this um, YMCA program called Youth in Government. And, you know, so I'll have a room full of 80 high school students and I'm telling them, you know, this is how people vote in other democracies that we constantly compare ourselves to uh, in, in other ways. And in, in places like New Zealand or Germany, you get two votes. You get a vote for a local representative and a, and a vote for a regional representative off of the party list. Um, in, in some countries, you, you know, just get a list of candidates that was prepared by the party. And, uh, you know, whatever share of the vote that that party wins, that share of the list gets in. And people are just absolutely amazed that there are uh, these systems that are not defined by this, you know, these two giant parties that have sort of a stranglehold on everything. They're surprised that you get to rank your candidates instead of having to choose uh, the candidate that you are comfortable uh, with winning, but it's probably not your first, you know, we talk about voting our, our fears and not our hopes. Yeah. So whenever, whenever you have these conversations with people that there are different ways of doing things, they're just, they, they tend to be gobsmacked. So 
the next, um, you know, with with Steve sort of transitioning, Steve has been president of CIFA for a really long time. And he's led the organization through a lot of uh, really difficult chapters with the California Voting's, Voting Rights Act and a lot of the lawsuits against the cities. Uh, we've repeatedly run bills that would allow cities, general law cities that Steve spoke about, to use ranked choice voting if they uh, if their voters chose that. Mm-hmm. So Steve Steve has led through a lot, and and so it, it's not going to be easy to just sort of hand the baton off immediately. And so uh, my goal in the next few years is to really get our message out there, to start yeah. churning out op eds, um, you know, push our social media presence. So that people are aware that one, these problems exist, because that is our unique challenge is getting folks to realize that there's a specific name to the problem that they recognize that they're unhappy with politics. And there's a reason why and that they're not alone in that feeling. So my, my goal for the next few years is to really going to be building relationships between people who know that there's something wrong, and that people who have heard about this, but want to learn more, and the people who have been working on this for a really long time and and have a sense of, of the path forward, the 40, the four phase plan that Steve talks about and, and building the table that all of those folks can sit around. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back in a moment with Steve Chesson and Kevin Sabo from CIFAR. Hello there. I hope you are enjoying this episode And I think we would all agree that the one thing we haven't been suffering from in 2020 is an overabundance of good news. Now, right now, what is shaping up to be one of the most politicized and contentious Supreme Court appointments could potentially be dragged out by the fact a group of Republican senators have been diagnosed with COVID, two of whom got it from the president. And You listen to YDHTY because, like me, you see something like this and realize the two-party system just isn't working out and that we need real competition in politics if we're going to find our way out of this and have a truly representative democracy. Now, in this episode, we're hearing from folks who made an impact at the local level by organizing, and we can do the same at the national level in the right numbers. So to help with the cause right now, just like now, now, share YDHTY with anyone you think this will resonate with. You can either share this episode or send them to YDHTY.com for past episodes and other content. If we continue to grow in numbers, we can make 2020 the final decade of the two-party duopoly. As always, thanks for listening and thanks for your support. You know, the three of us sort of represent maybe three different generations in a way where I sort of, I think, grew up when things were gradually getting more and more terrible. So uh, I kind of got to watch the the end of the Reagan era, the the Clinton era into Bush, uh, you know, into Bush too. And, and with that, see this kind of pundit-driven, uh, nationalized political dialogue really come to the forefront. And so I think I, m- maybe I could say that I was sort of the last generation where that sort of arguing was cool. And, and Kevin, tell me if I'm wrong here, but it seems like the younger generation is more turned off by it than anything else, right? Yeah, I, I think that there's a lot to be said about generations that are really shaped by these major historical events and these mm-hmm. trends. And so, you know, looking back, and not to get too political historian, but looking back during, um, you know, the New Deal era and the, the Keynesian consensus where politics in this country were really about um, the government and the civil service in particular, the business community, and then the labor community, the three-legged stool sitting down and figuring out how to run this country. And then that was replaced by the sort of Reagan neoliberal um, you know, consensus about privatization and mm-hmm. um, deferring a lot of the decision-making that we before made and sort of these democratic public spaces, it was sort of privatized and sent off for, for corporations. And I think now uh, you have my generation, which was shaped by 
you know, we were in elementary school for the most part when 9-11 happened and, um, you know, the shift to like very unilateral foreign and defense uh, policymaking. And uh, I think the economic, we've, we've now experienced two major economic crises in our lifetime, uh, a major disease outbreak, a pandemic, a once in a century pandemic. And so I feel like a lot of us have been really let down by this new, the, the post-Reagan consensus of, you know, a, a of viewing the, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party as far too similar uh, for our comfort. That we joke a lot. You'll hear millennials joke that we're not even a two-party system. We're a, we're really a one-party system. Yeah, yeah. I think, and and it's it's interesting you bring that up as well because the the one thing I I really found that kind of popped into my head before uh, we started this this recording was the fact that uh, you both, if you don't mind me kind of laying the partisan cards on the table, you know, you both are are active in some respect in the Democratic Party. Um, one might argue that party has the most to lose in a ranked choice voting environment because uh, they, uh, in the state of California, have have dominated state politics for some time. And it, it, it sounds to me, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, Kevin, but it sounds to me like even with that party dominance, there's still a lack of diversity of voices and you still kind of end up with the same problem you'd end up with if the Republicans were in charge, for example. Yeah, I, th- I think Democrats have, and, and Steve has been more active in the Democratic Party. I've sort of been one of those, <laughs> I, I sort of waffle between, yeah, I think I could uh, really make change within this organization to this organization needs to be uh, challenged by by a yeah. you know, separate institution, but you yeah. know, I, I really would caution Democrats, particularly California Democrats, who may view our work um, as a threat because Democrats have a unique problem that Republicans don't have, which is that Democrats have to constantly uh, excite their base and really have to get voters uh, to the polls and, and give yep. them a reason to be excited. And I think we're witnessing that now with with Joe Biden and some lack of excitement uh, there. And so Democrats have a real risk of not uh, not putting anything out there that, that gets folks excited. And, and that doesn't mean necessarily that Republicans win in, in this, you know, toe to toe fight. Uh, it, it means that they won by, by default with the other side, not, not showing up. And we have about, you know, 40% of this country that is eligible to vote that chooses not to vote. And mm-hmm. I don't think, in, in many places, it has absolutely nothing to do. I think that in California in particular, there is this very dangerous uh, prevailing thought that we simply need to make it easier and more accessible to vote and more people will. California has fairly low voter turnout, mm-hmm. but arguably it is easier to vote in California than it is anywhere else in the world. You know, I've mm-hmm. studied a lot of foreign democracies and there are places that do have, you know, high 70s, 80% voter turnout that are not mandatory to vote. They're still voluntary voting. And you still have to show up to a polling place in person on a weekday in the middle of the work week. And they still have this huge voter turnout. And here in California, we mail you a ballot, no matter where you live, no excuses, mm-hmm. um, several weeks before the election. And you can take your time sitting around your kitchen table, doing all the research that you need, filling it out and mailing it back postage free and we have automatic voter registration. If you go to the DMV, chances are you'll be, you know, your voter registration will be updated. It is easier in California than anywhere else, arguably, in the world to vote. And we still are not getting people uh, to see value in turning out. So there's something else that's missing. And I think our response to that is it's the lack of options, the lack yeah. of people feeling that they could show up on election day and, and, you know, play a major role in, in altering potentially the course of this country's political future. So there's still something missing. There's still something missing. And we, in our view, it's been that there are, that these elections are, are mostly theatrical. Yeah. Yeah, a- absolutely. And I even, and, and another note about California as well as among states, they have what's considered right now to be the gold standard for redistricting. So when you when I've talked to uh, electoral reform advocates in the past, uh, 
Common Cause in particular uh, was one that mentioned that their kind of blueprint is to try and make every state's redistricting process California. Uh, but even with that, um, even with the you know the bipartisan commission and the uh, and 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 the way the the attention they pay to redistricting, it's still, it still it doesn't seem to be enough. Um, I'll I'll ask I'll ask you both that and Steve, did well, you have a comment on that? Or I, no? Yeah, I, I do need to jump in since you yeah, did out me as, as active in the Democratic Party. Uh, first, yeah. I have to say that CIFR is a nonpartisan or more accurately a multipartisan organization. Mm-hmm. Um, we have Democrats, Republicans, Independents. Uh, the third party people uh, in our membership and and on our board. Um, although I must say that our, our membership does tend to lean left, but we do try to be encompassing uh, on that. Um, secondly, although I am active with the Democratic Party, I also believe in fairness. And for example, uh, Santa Clara County um, is covered by three assembly. Sorry, is covered by six assembly districts three wholly within the the county and three that we share with uh, other counties. And each of those assembly districts is represented by a Democrat. Yet, if you look at how people vote, about one third of the electorate consistently votes Republican. So by rights, two of those assembly seats should be held by Republicans. And if we had a proportional system, which I advocate for, um, I'd be perfectly happy to see uh two Republicans from Santa Clara County and four Democrats from Santa Clara County. And similarly, um, you know, I talk about with proportional representation, there wouldn't be any orphan Democrats or orphan Republicans in the state. Um, If you look at the red areas of the state, um, uh, Central Valley, um, the red areas where there are orphan Democrats who have no representation. And in the blue areas of the state, uh, the Bay Area, uh, you've got uh, orphan Republicans who have no representation. So I really do believe in fairness. And I think that's a, uh, a higher uh, value to me um, than the particular political party I happen to belong to. And I particularly, one of the reasons I belong to the Democratic Party is I think the Democratic Party actually does uh, believe more in fairness uh, than the Republican Party. Um, but I still want fairness, uh, even for people who don't believe in it. Yeah, you know, it's good way good way to put it. And and you know, two things I'd I'd want to note here, which is number one, first and foremost, that we're in an environment right now where I can't mention your partisan affiliation without automatically there being a veil of suspicion that this is some uh subversive way to ultimately undermine the opposition vote. And I think that that's a direct effect of our winner take all system where effect where effectively 50% of the electorate is is quote unquote the enemy of the state. Uh if you go back to the um the the 2000 election um I mean forget Florida. Uh Ralph Nader took more votes in New Hampshire than the difference between Al Gore and George W. Bush. Um, so if either of those two states had used ranked choice voting in their election, as Maine will do uh, this November, um, the outcome of that election would be different. And so that propelled a lot of Democrats to embrace ranked choice voting and a lot of Republicans to fear it. But then if you go to Alaska where elections of statewide Republican candidates has been spoiled, if I can use that word, uh, by libertarians being on the ballot. There, the Republican Party wants ranked choice voting and the Democrats oppose it. Yeah. So, like I said earlier in this this, uh, conversation, um, elected officials are constantly looking, would I have been able to win under this system? And that's what drives their opposition. And so because uh, one can argue that Democrats have been hurt more by the spoiler effect than Republicans at the national level. That's why you've got Republican reluctance to embrace it. Although the Republican Party in Utah likes it. Um, and, and similarly, where Republican elections have been spoiled by third party candidates, um, you've got Democrats who are leery of ranked choice voting. Yeah, I, I think too. the The funny thing is is that like you like you noted, 
the the left end of the of the political spectrum tends to gravitate more to ranked choice voting than the right. And even you look at Massachusetts, uh, which has ranked choice voting on the ballot, uh, it is supported by uh, Deval Patrick, our former Democratic governor, uh, Kerry Healy, our former Republican governor, and then Bill Weld, who was a Republican governor and ran on the VP ticket uh, or uh, ran as VP on the Libertarian ticket. Uh, in the last election, um, all of whom support this initiative. And and the funny thing about Massachusetts is about 20% of the state votes Republican. So that in and of itself would justify one or two uh, Republican representatives. Bottom line is I have no necessary allegiance to either party uh, at this point in time. And I, I give that caveat because I think, you know, one of the reasons for maybe more resistance on the right than on the left is the fact that the right has just been, the Republicans have just been far better uh, at uh, at getting control of states and getting control of state redistricting processes across the United States than the Democrats have. Um, and so that could very well be why they're kind of happy with the way things are now. You brought up two things that were Really interesting to me, you know, being, I'm sure your listeners who come from immigrant families can probably relate to this, but, you know, my family was not very uh, politically vocal. My my mom's family immigrated from Portugal and you never really heard anything about, um, you know, uh, any, any parties specifically being one, you know, one more villainous than the other. It was sort of my grandpa who, who immigrated here and, and worked on dairies in a very blue collar family, um, you know, we just had a general joke about politicians being, uh, you know, terrible. And, and so the one person growing up in my life who did have political opinions was my stepfather. Uh, and he happened to be very conservative, um, despite being an immigrant um, and, and us growing up fairly <laughs> low income working class. And I, for various reasons, ended up being a lot more progressive. But one thing that we have been able to, you know, despite we can never agree on on a lot of a lot of different issues, um, from presidential candidates to to specific policies, um, one thing that we have been able to agree on is that the areas where we do agree, we can't get any work done because you know he identifies as a Republican. Uh, even though he's probably a lot more libertarian, uh, because he identifies less with the Democratic Party. And it's sort of similar for me in that I am sort of forced to participate through the Democratic Party, even though I find it to be too conservative oftentimes. And so, you know, one thing that when people, one of the major reasons why I have been involved in this work is that I think that our two-party system has actually made this crisis where, like you said, that it's, it's hard for people to want to talk politics. And we've learned, we've been conditioned as a society these days to not be comfortable talking about that. And I think that's really unfortunate because politics isn't just about a convenient way for us to label ourselves. It's also a way for us to talk about problems that exist in our society. And if we can't come together and have a conversation about how to solve problems with, without, you know, the, the baggage that comes with these ideological and partisan labels, then things are only going to continue to get worse. That people seem to think that introducing more political parties to the mix would make matters worse. Uh, and, and I think that it, it that, that doesn't bear out. When you look at other developed democracies, that having more political parties has sort of uh, taken this sense of us versus them out of the equation. That here, folks identify as Republican and Democrat, it's us versus them. And so when there are only when we're only divided into two camps, the stakes get raised. But if we had this functional multi-party system where there wasn't any specific majority that had a stranglehold on things, then I think ironically having more parties in the mix would force us um, to, to look for consensus a lot more often. And you brought up the point about being um you know, like center right and being a more moderate Republican in Massachusetts. And I think that's also part of the problem in being in California is that our California Republicans look very different compared to Republicans at the national level. And another function of this two party system that doesn't really get talked about is that our parties, when they try to function at the local and state levels, they get co-opted by whatever's happening nationally. 
So this you don't see this in a place like Canada, where there is something like the Saskatchewan Party that doesn't have a national component, but it does operate in Saskatchewan. You know, this very specific example. There are no California parties or Texas parties. Everything is a function of this very nationalized system uh, of politics, and so it makes it makes the the baggage at the national level. Uh, you know, the very conservative elements in DC, the very progressive elements that sort of gets pushed down to the state and local level. And that's the reason why you see this paralysis is, is seeping into even state and local politics. Well, actually, um, you do have uh, local parties, for example, in California, we've got the Peace and Freedom Party, which I don't think exists in any place else. Um, but the problem with first past the post elections, and I know you've discussed this on previous shows, is Duverger's law. Uh, where a first-past-the-post system tends to lead to just a two, two major parties because any third party that develops is going to pull votes away uh, from the major party that it is most closely aligned with. And so that's going to uh, discourage uh, you, you, uh, the development of a, of a third party uh, because that, that major party that feels threatened by that uh, will either do everything they can to keep them off the ballot, or will do, uh, or will adopt, if necessary, some of their positions uh, just to uh, pull their voters back in, in, into their tent. You know, the the one thing I'll say too is, I believe wholeheartedly that PR is the best system for the United States. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing this. And at the same time, I also understand that realistically speaking, given the amount of resources and the amount of just knowledge that the two major parties have, um, if we waved a magic wand and there was PR across this, the nation today, the two parties would be able to adapt and ultimately grow into sort of a center right and center right part or center right and center left party. Uh, it's just they would also have a diversity of voices on the on either end of the political spectrum. And uh, and and to your point, Kevin, they'd be able to seek consensus there. You know, so I think I think the one thing I like to drive home, especially to folks who maybe are a little more partisan, is realistically speaking, we're still going to have two major parties. It's just we're, we're going to have a greater diversity of voices and the incentive isn't going to be uh, to effectively engage in political trench warfare uh, that involves no compromise and, and for that matter, no governing. Yeah, um, you'd probably see a little bit of, uh, I'm not sure if splintering is the right word, uh, but you would see a little bit of uh, splitting off. Um, people who are in the Democratic Party but are very much... Uh, pro-life or anti-choice, you know, they could form a, a, their own party. People within yeah. the Republican Party who are pro-choice, you know, might split off to f join up with a different party or whatever. And, and I, frankly, I would think that would be healthy. One of the problems um, with a two-party system, that the barriers, uh, the, the barriers to entry of a third mm -hmm. party are so high as to be impossible. Whereas if you did have proportional representation where the barriers to entry are a lot lower, um, you would see uh, the development and growth of, of more parties. And I think that would be healthy for our democracy. Yep. And at the end of the day, uh, it's about making elections responsive. Again, people were sort of participating in this where one side is guaranteed to win and one side is guaranteed to lose. And losing isn't really that high stakes. It's not an existential threat where you could be completely shut out. You could lose all your seats and and lose any sign of influence. You you just you know the speaker of the house just goes and becomes the minority leader and bides their time until the wheel turns again. And you know the problem with that is if parties have no sense of mortality, if parties have no um, if there are no consequences, if they don't learn to feel consequences from voters when they do things that are unpopular, then there's no, you, you lose the basis of democracy. It becomes this very um, corporatist system where this party exists completely unanchored amongst the public. And if there were the ability for other parties to enter the mix, you know, for example, if, if, if um, you know, you're, what we're seeing in places like Germany is that the Green Party, which 
since the 90s had been sort of a very small party in parliament is just it's becoming effectively the second largest party in the German political system because voters have chosen to prioritize the issue of the environment. And they don't feel that the major center-left party there had done that for the longest time. There is currently no way for environmentally focused or minded voters in the United States to force Democrats to do the same thing. Because right now it's Democrats, the the bar cannot be lowered. They just have to be marginally better than Republicans uh, in the eyes of their voters. And they're guaranteed a, a seat at the table. And that's, in my view, is just not a functioning democracy. One note. I mistakenly referred to Carrie Healy as the former governor of Massachusetts in this episode. She was actually former lieutenant governor. Yes, even Dan Sally has flaws, folks. Now, at the top of the show, I asked you, what phase of Steve's four-phase plan are we in right now? Now, according to Steve, phase three was when ranked choice voting began to spread state by state. And Maine will be voting using ranked choice voting for the first time this year. It's on the ballot in my home state of Massachusetts, and there are campaigns in other states gaining traction. So what does this mean? It means that phase four, proportional representation on a congressional level nationwide, is well within reach this decade. And with this change, we change the partisan makeup of the House to include more than two parties, and the entire political calculations behind campaigning for Senate and the presidency change in kind. So let's keep growing this thing, keep spreading the word, and get the momentum and public pressure we need to make this a reality. Now again, thank you to Felix for sending the folks of CIFR my way. And if any of you have people you'd like to hear on the show, just fill out the form on ydhty.com or get me on social media with the hashtag YDHTY. Now, we're going to be hearing from a fierce independent from California a little later on this month, but next week, Election Babe is back, emerging from the Babe Cave to dispel all the stupid myths around vote tampering, voter fraud, and voter security, while also giving all of us some tips on how to be good voters this year. So do not miss that one. As always, music you're listening to right now, courtesy of QuellerTac. YDHTY is written under the sage editorial council of our advisor, Adam Yaffe, produced in North Carolina by the big Geno, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Adios.